Welcome to Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful purpose-driven companies, people, and organizations. I'm your host, Aaron Quitkin. From ethical production to clean ingredients, it can be hard to purchase from companies that uphold your values. Our guests today, Thomas Ellis and Katie Tyson, are from Hive Brands. They want to help you buy products that you believe in. Hive curates brands that craft excellent products while improving the world around us. These items, everything from groceries and household goods, are meticulously vetted not only to taste great or do the job, but also to make sure that your purchase makes a positive impact in the world. Thomas and Katie, welcome to Brand on Purpose. Thanks for having us, Aaron. Thank you. And for our listeners, if you hear like a sleaze stack noise, that is a throwback from another era. I'm showing my age. Just ignore it. We don't know what it is, but we'll figure it out. So I'm so excited to have you guys on. I've got a bunch of questions. I'm going to start with a pretty basic one. So Thomas, you were one of the first employees at Jet.com before I believe it was sold to Walmart a number of years ago. And Katie, you've worked at a bunch of startups, including Casper and Fresh Pet. And I'm sure there's a bunch of others. Your background's more so in marketing. Thomas, it sounds like you're more of like a technical and ops guy. Katie, I'm going to start with you first. It's not easy working at startups. Everybody thinks it's like super glamorous, and it can be. You've worked with some incredible brands. Why start another startup after you've worked for so many in the past? Why do this to yourself? (laughs) (laughs) I love this question, Aaron. I mean, I've been pretty lucky from an early age in my career to be exposed to some pretty incredible entrepreneurs, like you've mentioned Casper and the the four founders there, um, Scott at Fresh Pet, who is also one of our co-founders at Hive, Gary Vaynerchuk. So through all of those experiences, really from an early age, I was like, I wonder if that's something I could ever do. So there was always this part of me that was hungering to have that experience in some way. And quite frankly, for a number of years, I thought you had to be you know, really special to be invited into that club. And what I learned over time was one, opportunities do come up, especially the more that you kind of sit in your career and patience is a really big piece of that. But two, if you believe in yourself and you really make the decision to make the leap, often the pieces kind of come into place. So I was in a really interesting stage of my career where I was ready to take that leap. And I think that was kind of the first right step. And then really early on into my entrepreneurial journey, which at the time was leaning more into the executive coaching world, which has always been something I was dabbling in on the side. Scott actually came to me with the idea for Hive. And so I started working with him really behind the scenes on figuring out the Hive concept and whether or not we had a real business idea here. And at one point, a couple of months into our journey, Scott turned to me and said, you know, you're a co-founder of this company. And I said, oh, well, I don't know if I would have ever had the gumption to say that about myself, but you're right, I am. And it's really unfolded since then. And I, I started putting more and more of my time into Hive. So for me, it's been something that's always been on my radar, that it took a long time to actually have like the belief and faith in myself to do. And that also was incredibly circumstantial and, and somewhat luck-based. Startups are totally crazy, to your point. And this is no different. It's incredibly challenging, but it's a challenge that I've loved being part of. And 
I love how much I learn every single day. So, you know, for me, it was almost something I couldn't not do when it came across my lap. And Scott, for reference, is Fresh Pet Scott? Yes, Fresh Pet Scott. Is that how he goes? Is that what we're going to call him from now on? I think we <laughs> Scott <should>. J. Morris. <laughs> well, well, here's the thing about Scott. Like, he did an incredible job building that brand. Mm-hmm. And off air, I was saying how much my dogs, like, salivate over some fresh pet products. So I've got a lot of respect for him and what he built. So thank you for that background. And your role is more of kind of the marketer and marketing. I'm the chief commercial officer, which is a funky title that for us encompasses everything consumer facing. So I oversee the marketing team, the product team, work really closely with our head of sustainability and the creative team as well. Awesome. Thomas, one of the first employees at jet.com, right? Or one an early, early employee, which is incredible. Then bought by Walmart. You stayed. Got a lot of very good experience at Walmart too. Ran a bunch of shit there. Tell me about that experience and also what led you to partnering with these three folks to build Hive Brands. Yeah, I'd love to share that whole story with you. I mean, the entire experience at Jet was a front row seat to one of the most incredible experiences of my professional life. And it came across just unbelievably serendipitously, taking a little bit of a step back to help you kind of understand how I ended up at Jet. For me, it really actually started, you know, early, early on. Like my parents are both entrepreneurs. I was always, you know, yearning for kind of more of the creation side of, of life in general. And that's where I had sort of a lot of inspiration throughout my career. Though I started a little bit more in a traditional setting. I, you know, I went to UPenn, big kind of finance factory kind of school, and ended up doing some consulting work. And ultimately, after getting my MBA, for me, it was really the intersection of commerce and technology. I liked how fast paced it was. I liked the innovation, largely driven by Amazon. So I was at eBay kind of learning all the best of what Amazon has, has built and just getting a sense of where things are going and what folks needed to do to, to kind of stay ahead of the curve there. But ultimately, I was using this kind of as a platform, a little bit more from a strategy background to parlay into being an operator into hopefully one day landing or finding the right time and place to jump in and realize what I was really after, which is really to be an entrepreneur and to lean into that side of the business where you're focused principally on the creation side. And my background actually has a lot to do a little bit on the, as part of being an entrepreneur, I think you're also fundamentally an underdog, right? To be a real entrepreneur means that, you know, 99 people out of 100 basically tell you that you're crazy and you can't do what you think you can do. And I like that type of challenge. To me, that's my sweet spot. And I just had the very good sort of serendipitous kind of dumb luck to have Jet actually land on my lap. It literally was a cold, unsolicited, you know, outreach through LinkedIn. And I, you know, started asking folks like, have you heard of this company, Jet.com? This was back in March of 2014. So they were still in stealth mode. And then I ended up joining in, I guess it was July of 2014. And it was literally a year, a year after that moment, Jet had launched to the public. And then a year after that got acquired by Walmart. And it was just such an incredible, incredible journey. I was focused principally kind of on the more of the general management side of things. So a little bit more from a business perspective, kind of knowing enough to be dangerous from a technical perspective, but really the focus was kind of being like a mini CEO of our respective verticals. And I touched all of the consumable, various consumable categories and helped 
in the early days of Jet built a coalition of what I'd call every living mortal retail enemy of Amazon. That was kind of the coalition that we needed to build in order to beat Amazon. So the experience that I had there was just absolutely, absolutely incredible and inspirational. I actually saw what, what does it feel like when somebody has an idea and can actually manifest it and bring it into reality. And that's the piece, that's the creation moment that got me so excited to have the opportunity to join up with Katie and Scott to help bring Hive into being as well. So let me, let me pause there. Hopefully I addressed your question. No, you definitely did. So it's unique. You guys have four founders or four co-founders. I'm assuming is Scott the ringleader here? So it was his initial idea and then he brought the three of you guys together? In short, yes. Scott, I would say, had the original idea. I had thoughts about this in a slightly different way. You know, after my time at Walmart, I also I had the, it afforded me the opportunity to kind of break off and start again from you know from scratch in a business with my wife. She was a fashion designer and she wanted to start her own business. And basically it was a mission-led women's wear women's wear brand. And I saw firsthand kind of how challenging it is for a mission-led brand to kind of break through. And between that and the retail context that I had, to me, you know, there was something missing. And then when I met with Scott, which by the way, was an introduction through one of the Jet co-founders because they happened to be neighbors in New Jersey. But it was through that introduction that the light bulb went off for me and helped make that connection complete. But it was it's basically the premise that there's something kind of fundamentally broken in retail and you have a whole bunch of these fantastic mission-led brands, but no central platform to kind of you know help amplify their collective voice, which is what we're looking to do over here at Hive. So Katie, I'm going to give you maybe a more difficult, snarky question. You ready? <laughs> Love it. Let's go. What is stopping Amazon from doing this next week? You know, you're not the first person to ask us that question. So we've thought about this quite a bit. And or maybe or, Amazon will just buy you next week. <laughs> <laughs> We're not ready for that, Aaron. <laughs> no, I mean, I think, listen, Amazon, anything they put their minds to, they could probably pull off. Let's be honest at this point. They are operationally excellent. What is stopping them is, I would say, a couple of things. One they would have to, if they were going to do this and do this well and do this thoughtfully, they would have to end their relationships with a very significant number of vendors that they're working with that do not fit within the category of sustainability. And then the level of complexity with doing that within like FBA model, I can't even imagine. Though again, they're operationally excellent. They could probably figure out if they wanted to. Second piece is, I don't know if they want to do this. They have kind of never exhibited interest in doing much when it comes to sustainability. They've made small strides here and there, but for the most part, it's really not where they shine. They are focused on convenience. They are focused on speed. So to think of the numerous amount of changes they would need to make to kind of fill the space for the customer and do so in a way that's authentic and that actually builds trust, it would be very significant. And I think it would hurt a lot from a financial perspective. So while they could do this, I really don't see it happening. That's fair. I feel like you've answered that question before. (laughs) Something tells me. (laughs) So you have what? More than 700 brands on your platform or in your marketplace currently. Did I get that right? We are, what, 250 brands? 
Close oh. to, yeah. to three. Yeah. Maybe it's 750 products. Where did that number come from? We are over 2,000 products or close to 2,000 products now. So 750 okay. unclear. <laughs> okay. So I made that up. But you're working with currently more than 250 companies or manufacturers, right? Yep, correct. And you've come up with the, like this, like these five criteria. Can you can you go through those five criteria, how you came up with them? And if you had to pick one, which is the most important of those five? Ooh, yes. Love that question. So this was one of the earliest pieces of work that we did. And we brought our head of sustainability, Jamie Lagomeyer, on really early days. He was, I think, actually our first full-time hire. But first exercise we went through was, okay, we know we want to make a marketplace that aligns more with people's values today. And we believe that we have an opportunity to find these brands that are doing better from a sustainability or a social impact perspective. But we don't know what that means beyond that. I mean, we have some idea. But what we did was we sat down with him and we looked at the entire life cycle of a product and all of the different kind of points in that cycle, both positive and negative, where a brand has an opportunity to make an impact. And that's really where the high five criteria came from. So it's looking at everything from the beginning of the process or the ingredient sourcing through to manufacturing, through to being on the shelf, through to being consumed and then end of life, and then assigning kind of an impact to each of those phases. So the only one that's kind of additive on top of that is the social good piece of the high five. So we do try to prioritize brands that are really doing interesting cause-related things. And then we also look at their business practices to see if they are prioritizing diverse hiring, for example. That's kind of additive to the baseline sustainability life cycle of the product. So we look at that as well. If there is one that, I mean, they're all really important, which is why we try to prioritize all five equally. But if there's one that I would kind of put my stock into just based on what we've learned about sustainability and food systems, it's really the sourcing side and the ingredient integrity piece of the high five that is responsible for call it 30% of the world's GHG emissions. And that is where you can have a tremendous impact. And that's everything from how the ingredients are grown, where they come from, how they're produced, how the labor is treated, et cetera. But they're all really important. So Thomas, I'm going to guess that you are on more of the logistics side as well of things. I certainly dabble. It's one of our the other co-founders. Our COO focuses a bit more on the operations side. But yeah, certainly dabble. So based on what Katie is saying, so I've had, I've had B Corp on. I've had lots of companies that are also certified B Corps. What is the difference between your process and theirs? And theirs is obviously quite laborious. They don't have a marketplace. They are a certification, a certifying body. And I respect what they do, but I also think that you can still be a great company and highly sustainable without having that certification. So this is a two-part question. I've heard somebody told me you like two-part questions, so I'm going to give you a two-part question. (laughs) You went to Penn. You can handle this, right? So you're good. (laughs) So the first part is, how are these five criteria different, additive, better, the same than kind of the B Corp certification process? The second part is, are you willing to kick a company out should they fail midstream in meeting your one of your five criteria? 
Yeah. Fantastic question. So and I'll answer the second one first, just because if I don't, I may forget. But absolutely. Basically, our whole our whole reason for being is to be a platform for the world's best products. And in order for us to live up to that, we need to constantly ensure that that's exactly what we offer. And we also need to do so in a way that's continuing to play the role as a curator. In other words, you know, we we need kind of not an endless aisle, as is often talked about in terms of the you know e-commerce world. That's not actually what customers want. We're part of our value is that we've done the work for customers. We vetted the very best brands, and so we absolutely you know have a continuous cycle. And as new brands come up, other brands are you know in review, and we want to be partners though with with all brands to help make everybody you know help everybody get to better, as we often you know speak about internally. So. Short answer is yes, definitely. As different practices come into play or different technologies come into play that allow us to create a more sustainable and equitable world. For the first part, so I would say what we're doing that's a bit different. It's, I think at the end of the day, you know, Katie kind of went through the various high five criteria, but to me, the high five criteria itself really is just the starting point of the broader vision that I think is the unlock in sustainability because what we're doing is being pioneers in the broader kind of retail space. And in order to be a pioneer, I think the kind of definition there is you need to, you know, go where other people have not yet gone. And for us, that means making an investment in the infrastructure layer that allows us to certify what it means to be sustainable. And and I think that the way that B Corp goes after it, and, and by the way, we're, you know, I think technically close to being a pending B Corp ourselves. Right. And we, we certainly have a lot of stock and value in that. But I think where we go above and beyond is because we are a platform, a marketplace, we have a unique opportunity to leverage all of the information, all of the fantastic intelligence that we are accumulating here by understanding all the categories inside and out and vetting the various brands and understanding where they can improve, understanding what our customers are looking for. We basically create an ecosystem where that first, second, third party data that we are collecting on the brands and, and what, what it means to be great in a given category and using that to create innovative user experiences for customers to allow them to viscerally you know, and kind of vicariously participate in the goodness that the brands are doing out there. So they can feel like they are contributing to the world and helping make the world a better place. And that for us, I think, creates a sticky platform and people want to continue to buy through us because they can see the impact that we all collectively are having by buying through Hive. And the other side of that is on the vendor side, you know, working with our makers, because again, we want to, although we have high standards, we're not in the business of shaming brands. We want to be a platform that allows brands to improve their practices. So we think that there's an interesting opportunity to really help facilitate and help elevate brands out there and help them improve. I'll give you one example. You know, there was, you know, we, we take this vetting you know, process pretty seriously. There was a particular trail mix brand that we were looking at. And as we did some of our homework, it turned out that the way that they were sourcing their cashews was from a part of the world that had notoriously horrendous human rights and labor practice issues. And so we worked with them to identify an alternative source for those cashews. And ultimately, they pursued that. They transferred their supply chain to improve their overall business practices and therefore then met our criteria. And, and that's the impact that we're having upstream before brands even get on the Hive platform. They are improving their practices, and it kind of cascades broadly to the whole industry. So it's just this flywheel by being the owner of a platform where we can improve 
the user experience, help consumers shop their values in the way that they've been wanting to, while also helping improve brands is principally how we are different from B Corp. Speaking of Flywheel, how are you guys maintaining 100% carbon neutrality? We've been working with a company called Cloverly, which our sustainability head vetted very meticulously. And Cloverly is pretty amazing. They have a great plugin with Shopify. So that's made offsetting all of our shipments from a customer perspective really seamless. And then because we are, I mean, this is actually an interesting side effect to the pandemic, but because we are a fully remote company, there's not a whole lot from an operations perspective that we have to offset. We offset our travel, we offset our 3PLs operations, et cetera. But for the most part, a lot of the- It's shipping, kind of, right? It's mostly just yeah, shipping. exactly, yeah. exactly. And I've been incredibly surprised. I mean, we've meticulously vetted the projects that we're funding through Cloverly. So we're funding some really meaningful projects in urban reforestation and things of that nature. But- The cost to us to do this is pretty minimal to the point of everybody should be doing this. Yeah. Shopify is crazy. Also, I think that it's like magical. It's pretty (laughs) incredible. Anybody who's ever been on that platform in the back end, it's just amazing the way they've put together. And also, I think, flattened some of the costs associated with deliveries. Oh, yeah. I completely agree. It's It's pretty amazing. So... What is the business model? How do you guys make money? So it's, it's pretty straightforward. I mean, as I mentioned, we often get referred to as a, a marketplace. And for some people, that just means a place where you can shop. And for others in the industry, they tend to think about that as uh, whether you own the product or if you have third-party sellers kind of listing products and doing a dropship model. We are, in effect, at this time, at least a pure call it e-retailer, right? We're vetting, identifying brands. We are taking inventory. We are warehousing that and shipping it all in a single box. And part of that is because, or a huge part of that is, that is the overall most most efficient and environmentally friendly way to optimize logistics. But in short, it's a traditional you know, e-retail model. So there's a built-in markup, obviously some margin. Do you charge brands for being on the platform or do you just basically... I'm seeing Katie shake her head now. You no. basically just move the product for them and yep. they pay, rather you're just like a retailer, you'd be making some margin, you mark up the product. Yeah, exactly. Right. We've been, and one of the reasons, one of the other reasons we started this company was Scott in particular was seeing for a lot of small CPG businesses that he was mentoring, just how hard it was for them to make it because of the high cost of entry for a lot of retailers, whether that's physically paying to be on shelf or then needing to fund really expensive marketing programs, things like that. That was something that we were vehemently against from the beginning. So we don't charge our brands anything to be on the platform. We do not force them to participate in marketing programs, things of that nature. We're trying to really be incredibly favorable to these smaller independent guys. So you'll see there's pretty equivalent placement for almost all of our brands. And, you know, it's not like you can buy your way into premium spots on Hive at this point. And that's really important to us to hopefully build winners in a way that would be much more difficult in traditional retail. What's the most successful category that you have on Hive right now? Or the fastest growing, I would say. 
Ooh. I mean, most successful, Thomas, you can take fastest growing. Most successful for us is snacks. Right now we have an incredible array of snacks. And I think that was a really interesting learning too, is in e-commerce, especially snacks do really, really well. But then there's a lot of really innovative snacks in the world of sustainability, a lot of great tasting stuff. So we've been, we've been killing it there. I'm not surprised about snacks. What are your favorite products on the platform? You don't have to name brands necessarily, but what can you not live without? Because I'm yeah. sure through this, right? You yourself, Katie, probably are like, oh, you know, you might know about Tony's Chocolonia or whatever, but through, you probably have come across some stuff. You're like, I can't live without this. I wish I knew about this two years ago, three years ago, whatever. Oh yeah, 100%. So there's so many of those, but I will give you my top four, most likely. So I've been making the switch to nut-based milks and had been doing that for a while. Elmhurst is by far the best, both from a sustainability perspective and from a taste perspective. And I use it in my coffee and it froths mm. the best. So I'm obsessed with all of those. Another big one that's a huge change is I'm very into Chagrin Valley's shampoo bars. And they are like incredibly different where you don't even use conditioner. You just, your hair kind of naturally gets used to only that. Well, okay, I'm, I'm talking to the wrong guy. You're but, talking to like a tiny little Jewish bald man here. Uh, the Jewish thing doesn't really make any, <laughs> not really relevant, but I'm just trying to give people a better picture. <laughs> but, okay, but I get it for people who have hair. Thomas is sporting some hair. I think that's real, right? We can talk about it later. <laughs> I think it's, it's real. real. Yeah. Yep. But yeah, that's been a huge game changer for me. And that is a very, like, when you're thinking about the sustainability journey, that's one that a lot of people I think are scared to kind of make the change into. Totally yes. worth it. Highly recommend. I guess another one that's somewhat related is we carry a brand of toothpaste tabs called Huppy. And I love them. I think they are so much better than regular toothpaste. And then you're, you know, not using a plastic tube, which is fantastic. And my last favorite, which best for last, is a Tramlex brand called Share. That is a pretty small up-and-coming brand. They are, I mean, Trailmix would never have been my snack of choice before. The collection of ingredients that they use is like best of the best, and they are absolutely delicious. So now I have a two-pound bag on hand at all times. Yeah, I'm the big Trailmix kind of person. You'd think a squirrel drove my car because the amount of snacks I have like tucked into every little nook and cranny in my car. It's a big fight with my wife, but I'll definitely <laughs> check that out. The company that you said makes those toothpaste tablets, is that yep. the name of the brand or the name of the company? The name of the brand is Huppy. I think they're also independent. I'm not 100% sure on that, but I'm 99% sure. So I'm having a post-COVID brain moment because I had somebody on the podcast a number of months ago who made toothpaste tablets. And I can't remember the name of the company, mm -hmm. but I'm sure we'll figure it out at some point. But I think that's really cool. And I remember thinking when I was speaking to her, well, that's a so obvious, but no one's done it yet. Idea to yeah. get rid of all those tubes. That yeah, there's a lot of those that are emerging that feel incredibly obvious to the point where you're like, why did no one do this before? And I mean, one of the main reasons is because companies weren't prioritizing sustainability and innovation because, you know, consumers weren't asking for it in the way that they're asking for it now. Right, right. How do the four of you get along? And this is not like a therapy question, or <laughs> I just think that having two co-founders is hard. Four sounds tricky. 
I'm going to guess one, you all really like each other, or at least have respect for each other, but I don't think like is a luxury. And two, each of you has very defined, very specific rules. Yeah, that's exactly right. And that's what I was going to say. So we have, we've done a good job of basically dividing and conquering from a ownership perspective, which I think you kind of have to do in an early stage startup, especially when that is like the level of complexity that we have as a retail model. So I think one thing we did really, really well from day one was kind of pick our lanes and really focus there. And that allows us to obviously move quickly. We still communicate and collaborate across those things, but for the most part, everyone's aware of their domain of ownership. And then I think it keeps the kind of like relative drama down as well as, you know, you're not, poking into each other's stuff more than you need to for your own kind of functional area. And I would say, you know, everybody's worked together for the most part with the exception of Thomas, but Thomas has really come in and gelled well with the rest of the group. But there was a bit of that foundation laid from the beginning and everybody's good people. So, you know, that's a really important piece of this. Yeah. Not a whole lot of tea to spill there. (laughs) And you guys are venture backed? We are not. We are actually fully funded by a combination of high net worth individuals and Scott, who's been, you know, incredibly successful through FreshFit. Right, right. There are, as you are aware, other marketplaces that are quite similar, right? Thrive, Grove, Blue Land, right? Because of your mission, I'm gonna assume that you want them to succeed. It's not just one is the best one. Yeah. Having said that, having said that, I also appreciate that we're all very competitive and you have a business to run. What is it that separates Hive brands from those other marketplaces? Yeah, it's a great question. And it's one we get all of the time as well. To echo your point, we believe in rising tides, raising all ships, especially as it comes to sustainability. The more folks who are playing in that space, the better it is for everyone. So we want to see those guys succeed. But to your point, we're pretty competitive ourselves. So for us, where we really believe that we shine and where we can really make a difference is in demystifying sustainability for the consumer. Companies like Thrive and Grove are doing bits of that here and there. Thrive is carbon neutral shipping, which every company should be doing right now. To me, I don't even consider that as a differentiator for us. Grove is really focused on solving the plastic problem in the world of cleaning, and we like very much applaud them for that. For us, we are focused on really helping consumers understand and make better choices from a sustainability and impact perspective across a wide swath of categories in the consumable world. And we're going to continue to invest in really being the standard bearers and the leaders in certifying what sustainability means, which is really confusing today. There really isn't one certifying body. There isn't one metric. There isn't one way to think about it. There's not one source of truth. And so we're really hoping to, and we're investing in people and technology and et cetera, to really define what that means and then make it super clear and easy to understand and easy to translate into action for consumers. And isn't this a global opportunity, not just the U.S. opportunity? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, today we are very U.S. focused, though a lot of our supply chains are global. So we're thinking about it on a global level every single day. But 
this can absolutely apply to really every country. In terms of products, Thomas, that are either you want to see more of on the market or there are not enough of these types of products in the market that meet your threshold, your criteria, especially when it comes to sustainability. What do you think those are? What types of categories? What do you want to see more of? And where are those holes? Where are those gaps? Yeah. Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I think that the the overall market and the interest in the space has been developing over, you know, 20 plus years, but in particular, a lot of acceleration over the past five years, 10 years. And so there's there are a lot of areas in particular within food that have fantastic coverage. And right now, I think that, you know, there are a lot of folks that actually aren't aware of many of those products. And I think we're doing a pretty good job of driving awareness around that. And you're seeing things like that in terms of basic snacks, pantry staples, of course, a lot of the innovation in the reusable cleaning space. I would say that probably the weakest area, trickiest area would be paper products, right? That's where there's a little bit, there's oftentimes a trade-off between sustainable and best practices as it relates to ethical sourcing and quality. There are folks out there trying to do it, leveraging kind of bamboo more than, you know, paper, uh, traditional tree harvesting. But I think that the, from my perspective, there's opportunity, I suppose, within not only, I'd say, paper products, but generally speaking, I think in the consumable space of personal care, I think there's a lot of interesting opportunity there as more and more trends lead towards folks wanting to minimize their plastic footprint. You know, we often talk about this concept internally as a you know, plastic-free bathroom. And there are folks that are trying to push the envelope as it relates to consumer behaviors. You know, are you okay trading your tube of toothpaste? Or everyone is super used to that. And folks are trying to, you know, give opportunities for the plastic-free option, which oftentimes chewing up these little tablets. And for some people, it's a little bit much. But all of this is about expanding the market opportunity and giving people a range. And we've seen a lot of budding interest in this space, but I'd love to see continued innovation, paper, personal care. And I think the, the list goes on after we expand out of the core consumable categories. Those are all great points. I, I suppose anything else in the world, it's, there's a little bit of time too that's involved in terms of generational turnover. And one of the things I think you and those like you have on your side is this Gen Z who are willing to either make perceived or real sacrifices and or behavior change to adopt new products that might be outside of the norm of how they grew up, like using the toothpaste as an example. So, you know, I've, I've long said, you know, it's both innovation, but also sometimes time and different cohorts that require great things to happen. And I think that's what we're probably going to witness, right? Exactly. That's exactly right. And and we're looking just to provide a range of options. We want to provide the most sustainable options out there, help drive awareness to it. But by no means are we expecting people to make the the full crossover into crushing up, you know, tabs of you know their toothpaste when they're not used to that. We want to help everybody get to better, right? Nobody here, us ourselves included, nobody here is claiming to be perfect by any stretch. We just are trying to facilitate the awareness and opportunity for brands that are doing good in the world to get you know their airtime and to allow people to be able to vote with their dollars and, and help make this world a little bit of a more virtuous and equitable place to live. So from virtuous to virtual to real, Thomas, do you ever foresee as we get to this new normal and we go from pandemic to endemic, God willing, sometime, someday, do you ever foresee your platform also manifesting itself 
more so in the real world as well as, or the physical world, I should say, not just the virtual world, because I think we definitely need those two things to collide in a positive way. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, different retailers have different answers to this, but they all involve one way or another, some type of omni-channel presence at the end of the day. You know, my context, again, was coming from a little bit more of the e-commerce, e-retail end of the spectrum. And we were, you know, always looking at kind of the, the, the traditional brick and mortar folks, the Walmarts of the world. And then eventually through Jet, I ended up at Walmart. And then the narrative was, well, who is going to become the other one faster? Does Amazon become Walmart? Does Walmart become Amazon? And the point being is that they both wanted to invade the other space. They both needed to have a strong presence in both physical and e-commerce. And I think that that is kind of the, the macro theme, whether you're you know, a big mass retailer like those guys or in the, a little bit more of the niche space, you need to have a physical presence of some kind. There is an experiential end in particular within the space that, that we occupy. So, you know, what form does that take? Hard to say. At the very least, you know, you could easily imagine certainly pop-ups and, and in some cases, perhaps locations, you know, in, in sort of the major areas in which we operate, in particular, tapping into the local products and ingredients from a given area. That's absolutely a really, really interesting theme for us. Over time, we probably will look to expand or explore partnerships to tap a little bit more into the fresh and frozen and you know a little bit more of the perishable end of the spectrum and being local in certain areas, I think afford us a great opportunity to develop partnerships and, and expand our offering in that way. Yeah, I often think of the word allyship in a different way when it comes to what you're doing in that we often talk about it in the context of D, E, and I, and B. But I also think, and also even before that, around gender, in that you know you need everyone to come together. No one can do it alone in order to make improvements in processes and whatnot. And I think about that as well when it comes to kind of bigger players like Walmart, like you said. And you know, I was heartened by, and I don't think this is a PR play because it would be a very expensive PR play. But I don't know if you saw recently, but Etihad Airlines recently announced the Green Liner as opposed to the Dream Liner. Got it. <laughs> I don't even need to know it. All I need to know is that an airline stepped up, put hundreds of millions of dollars into manufacturing with Boeing, an airplane that is more sustainable. It can't be 100% sustainable because it wouldn't be an airplane, right? We'd call it something else. We'd call it something, but fiction. But the fact that they were headed in that direction, and we still need the help of larger suppliers and manufacturers and retailers in order to make massive changes in the market. It can't just happen incrementally with smaller players. Yeah. I think that that's that's right, and and you know the it's interesting because a lot of these players out there. I mean, I think for corporations at the end of the day, I mean, I think that they are finally understanding that there is an intersection of taking care of the various stakeholders, everybody from the earth, right, but also to the corporate bottom line, and for them, those things kind of work out, right? If you have the green liner, you're using less fuel, and it makes economic sense, and it's better for the environment. I mean, at the end of the day, that is in many ways what we're looking to offer, which is a more sustainable lifestyle, but without the compromises, right? So if you can have your cake and eat it too and develop a great business and in doing so have a fantastic impact in the world, that is what we're shooting for. And I think some of the big guys have some easy opportunities. It's easy in a relative sense because in many ways they have more resources to commit towards it, but still they need to do their part. And it was the likes of Walmart that I think ultimately recognized where the demand was going as it relates to something like organic milk, 
right? At one point, that wasn't always a thing, but it caught on. Walmart put its shoulder behind it and helped expand an entire industry because of their scale. So, so yeah, they play a really, really important role in bringing all of this to fruition. Katie and Thomas, I can't thank you enough for being on the podcast. I think this is super cool, really interesting. I'm really excited to see you to continue to grow and see more brands join the platform. And I promise to go online later and do some shopping. And I hope all of our listeners do the same. And just so our listeners know, what is the URL they can go to to shop on your platform? It is hivebrands.com. Awesome. I'm not even going to ask you how much you have to pay for that. <laughs> I don't think it was that much, actually. <laughs> no, I just took out like misspellings on it. I took hivebrands.org, hivebrands.edu. I'm just kidding. I'll sell them all back to you guys. It's totally fine. When you go public, you can buy them back for me. I'm totally kidding. Thank Perfect you again. arbitrage strategy. Yes, Thank you so exactly. much, Aaron. And definitely right. fill up your car with hive snacks this time. <laughs> I will do that. I'll get rid of the bad ones and I'll replace them with the good stuff. Perfect. Thanks again. All, All right. right. Thank you so much. <laughs> Thank you so much. I love the opportunity. Really appreciate the time. Thanks for listening to this episode of Brand on Purpose, the podcast dedicated to uncovering the untold stories behind the most impactful, purpose-driven companies, organizations, and people. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Special thanks to our production team, including Maria Bias, Michael Grubbs, Anna Lamb, Haley Sackett, and Nina Valdez. Learn more about our show, sponsorship opportunities, and host by emailing bop at kwtglobal.com or visiting aaronquitkin.com. Find us on LinkedIn and Instagram under Brand on Purpose Podcast. (laughs) 